Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. My name is Dewey Doval, and I am joined by my co-host Jimmy Johnson to discuss the life and theology of Karl Barth. And it goes without saying that Karl Barth has become quite the enigma in confessionally reformed circles over the years. And uh, as a result of that reality, we brought in one of the best Bardian scholars to talk about the man who some say is the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Um, so without further ado, it's my joy and privilege to welcome Dr. Jim Cassidy to the Covenant Podcast today. Dr. Cassidy is the pastor of South Austin Presbyterian Church. He's also the president of Reform Forum. So Dr. Cassidy, welcome to the Covenant Podcast, sir. It is a joy to have you on today. Hi, Dewey. Hi, Jimmy. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a, it's a privilege. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Cassidy, since you are a first-time guest on the Covenant Podcast, would you be willing to share a little bit about yourself, maybe your testimony, educational background, or ministry experience, whatever you feel led to share to help introduce our listeners to you a bit, and then maybe even share some background information as to what led you to get into studying Karl Barth? Yeah, so um, I'll be quick because Bart's much more interesting than I am, but uh, the the Lord is even more interesting than any of us, and he's the one who's done a great work uh, in me as, as he has done in you brothers and all those that Christ has died for. Um, so I grew up Roman Catholic. I uh, nominally Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Um, went to Catholic college. It was actually there at Catholic college. I attended St. Anselm college in Manchester, New Hampshire, a small liberal arts school in new England. And it was there that I came across a Southern Baptist gentleman, a uh, fellow student who led me to the Lord. Mm. And, uh, And and he created a monster uh, because soon after he led me to the Lord, I began to read absolutely ferociously and uh, began to read the scriptures, began to read philosophy and theology. I was already a philosophy major Hmm. and I had more questions than he was able to answer. And so uh, the Lord in his providence also put on campus a a gentleman who was leading a Protestant Bible study at this Roman Catholic college. He was also a student, but he was a member of a PCA church in Mm. Nashua, New Hampshire. And so he was reformed and he took me under his wing and started getting good reformed books into my hands, Bible study materials, et cetera. And uh, got me going to church down there. That was the first time I heard expository preaching. Uh, wow. The church that I had joined after the Baptist student led me to the Lord was a Baptist church, and it was, you know, basically topical sermons, and it, it was basically every text led to you need to tithe more. Um, so by the time <laughs> I went to the to the PCA church, um, uh, I, I heard expository preaching, and I sat there in the pews in awe of, of for the first time in church hearing the voice of God. I don't mean like, you know, in my head, like sure, I mean sure. from the pulpit, right? Uh, it was the word expounded, which is the word of God and um, heard, heard God speak. And it, I was floored by it. After that service, one of the elders invited me out to um, uh, Pizza Hut. I remember it was a Pizza Hut for, for lunch. 
And uh, no, his he did not have a particularly high view of the Sabbath, um, but <laughs> I didn't know better at the time myself. But anyway, uh, still not reformed at this point. And he began to talk to me about the doctrine of predestination and election. And I remember, you know, pushing back on him significantly and him answering my questions, then me getting back into my car, driving back to my college campus and trying to reason somehow around or behind God's sovereign choice Hmm. as if there were something that I could find within me or within my life or within this created realm that would compel God to choose me over others. And I Hmm. couldn't find anything because everything that I thought of, I said, I, it, it came to my mind, wait, no, but God also ordained that if he ordained everything that comes to pass. Hmm. So, um, there, there was no getting behind the sovereign purpose and will of God. And at that point, I had become at least a one-point Calvinist. <laughs> um, and uh, every all the other pieces fell into place after that. Um, at that church, they had a, they had a men's gathering, uh, periodical, uh, periodical um, an occasional um, men's gathering around cigars and drink at a local pub. And uh, I was invited to that and went to that. The, the pastor, some elders and seminary students from Gordon-Conwell were there. And I cut my theological teeth talking to those guys. And at that point, I uh, wasn't sure. I, at that point, I was planning on going to Gordon-Conwell Seminary after I graduated college. And I couldn't find a job after graduation. I was a philosophy major. Couldn't find a job. Go figure, <laughs> right? Um, so... Uh, I had a, I had a return to New Jersey, but before returning to New Jersey, where, where I'm from, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, in case you couldn't tell by the accent. So anyway, um, as, as I was thinking about returning back to New Jersey, I was actually looking through the, uh, the, the help wanted ads back in the day when people bought newspapers and read them and, and <laughs> looked in the classified section for jobs. And as I was looking for, for a job, I came across, <clears throat> Um, an ad that said something to the effect of Westminster Confession of Faith, Doctrines of Grace. Do these things sound familiar? Give me a call. And so I didn't know what that was all about. I gave a call and a guy by the name of Greg Reynolds picked up the line. And uh, it turns out that he was an OPC pastor planting a church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Hmm. And so I got together with him. him. He gave me my first um, uh, copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and he began to tell me about where he went to school, which was Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And so, at that point, because I couldn't find a job, I went back, moved back with my parents to Edison, New Jersey, and decided that at that point I would seek to enroll at Westminster Seminary. And uh, that's that's what I did the following year. I joined a OP church nearby. I was actually looking for a PCA church, and at that time, uh, things have changed, but at that time, there was there, there were no PCA churches in my area. The closest conservative confessional Presbyterian church was the OPC, hmm. and so I ended up reluctantly going there because <laughs> I wanted a PCA church because that was my experience, right? And I, okay, I'll go to this OPC church, whatever, you know, and right. uh, go, go, go to this OPC church and I ended up falling in love with it. And the pastor there was so warm. So he's now with the Lord, but um, uh, so receiving, uh, nurturing, uh, pastoral, caring, brought me down the tour of the campus at Westminster. 
And um, uh, eventually I just, I, I became committed to the OPC. But anyway, I, I squeezed uh, a three-year MDiv program into five years. Um, and uh, that uh, was working part-time. And so I had to stretch it out a wee bit. But anyway, so graduated in uh, 2002 from Westminster, took my first call at Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I was there for four and a half years when I took a call back to New Jersey. And it was there at at an OP church in New Jersey. I decided to enroll in the PhD program at Westminster. And so Mm -hmm. I did Uh, that. uh, It it took seven years uh, while also pastoring full time uh, to finish my my doctorate there. Uh, but the the reason why I decided to go with with Bart um, now you got to understand this is kind of it took me a little while as I was getting into the program to decide to go in this direction uh, actually with really good ongoing conversation with a good friend of mine at uh, Jeff Waddington who mm. uh, at the time was a teacher of the congregation in Ringo's and uh, he was a he was ahead of me well ahead of me in the doctoral program and so I was pulling from his experience and he was so gracious and helpful to me. Um, anyway, so, um, I, I narrowed it down to studying either Charles Hodge or Carl Bart. And, and the reason why I narrowed it down to those two is because I lived actually closer to Princeton seminary than I did Westminster seminary. Wow. And so, uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to take couple of years of classes at Westminster, the rest of the time is going to be basically in my office at the church, cranking out a dissertation. So, um, so I figured, let me, let me take advantage of the really rich resources that we have, you know, so close to me, you know, I could do all my research at Princeton seminary and, you know, just a shout out by the way, to the staff and everyone involved at, at, at the seminar, at the library at Princeton seminary. Um, I, I just walked in, off the street, wasn't a student at Princeton at the time. I ended up taking a couple of external courses there, but I wasn't, I wasn't enrolled as a student, wasn't alum. I wasn't even part of the PCUSA, Um, (laughs) just walked in off the street and they, they accommodated me and uh, helped me. All the staff was so helpful to help me do the research I needed to do. Wasn't paying a dime to the institution and they were just, they were serving me. And, and I, I just so very grateful for, for the people, um, there at, at the seminary library. So anyway, um, I decided, let me use the resources that are, that are at my disposal because that are at my disposal, because it's closer for me to get to that library than it is for me to get to the library at Westminster. Um, so, I mean, it, it was sort of a economic, um, decision, but also, um, part of that i i at that time podcasts were starting to become a thing uh, blogs had become a thing uh, the internet uh, uh, discussion groups were were a thing at the time and i just started to come across you know evangelical and and even uh presbyterian conservative confessional presbyterian guys um who were all talking about bart and they were like really into him and hmm. and you know you would have thought he was the second coming and you would have thought <laughs> that he was a superhero of some sort um and of course i was taught at at westminster seminary uh you know through van till and whatnot that that bart 
you know, had problems theologically. And so uh, now I had read very little of the primary sources at the time. And so I knew that I can't just go in there with Christianity and Bardianism under my arm and debate these guys and, right. and, and try to persuade them of Bart's errors. Um, because quite, quite frankly, uh, you know, I, I didn't know, I couldn't confirm that Bart in fact had errors because I mean, I was, I was reading Van Til. I trusted Van Til. I had no reason to doubt Van Til, but that's reading Bart through the eyes of somebody else and not with your own eyes. And so I needed to study the primary sources. And, um, and I knew that I would have at Princeton seminary. They also have the Carl Bart study center. And hmm. uh, they, it's just this side of the Atlantic. It's, it's the most comprehensive thing you can find on, on the theology and life of Carl Bart. Um, so I knew that this would be the place to, to do the research that I needed to do. And, um, and I, and I wanted to be able to serve the church because if, if men, uh, ministers in particular are, are starting to, you know, tout the theology of Karl Barth and, and promote it and, and find it to be useful and helpful to them. If in fact it, it was not useful, or helpful to them, then they were hurting the church. And it was Van Til who says that the that the call of the minister and the apologist in particular is to protect Christ's little ones. Hmm. And so there there was a pastoral concern that I had. It, it was primarily pastoral, and the um, the academics were a mere means to a pastoral end, which is the way I think it ought to be anyhow, right? Amen. I mean, you know, we... We ought not to, academics is never to be seen as an end in itself, but a, a means by which we serve the church. And so I wanted to, I wanted to be better equipped uh, because I was so ill-equipped at the time uh, to be able to answer and to uh, protect Christ's little ones as best as I could in my own fallible, limited way. Um, and so I decided to study BART so that I can, I can, you know, engage with people who found him to be useful. And if in fact there were errors that I found there, that I would be able to uh, show those errors and um, be able to persuade them to think in a more consistently biblical way. Hmm. Well, Dr. Cassidy, as um, Dewey alluded to in the beginning, and as your answer showed, we're going to be talking about Karl Barth. Uh, with that being said, would you be willing to provide a biographical sketch of the life and ministry of Karl Barth? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do that. Um, it, if I could preface it with, this is not my area of expertise. Um, you know, I, I've, I've studied him long enough. I have a, you know, general outline of a sketch of his life and his biography. I've read enough biography about Barth to be able to give you just a sketch and and hopefully with accurate details if i get anything wrong uh i don't feel at all ashamed about being corrected so um you know listeners uh can send those uh, emails my way and I'm, I'm happy to to be corrected um but uh, in brief and and very briefly uh he's born in 1886 he died he dies in 1968 he is born into a Swiss, he's born in, in Basel. Um, he's born into a Swiss reformed or reformed Swiss um, uh, home. 
His father, Fritz Bart, was himself a pastor and a professor of New Testament church history. Um, uh, he did his studies as he was growing up and as they do in Europe at multiple schools. Uh, as far as I could tell, generally speaking, you don't sort of like how we do, like, you know, you're going to Southern seminary and you'll graduate there with a PhD. Well, um, you know, it's typical to move around place to place to study under different theologians and and whatnot uh, and whatnot. Um, he he studied under von Harnack. Um, he studied under Wilhelm Herbon uh, and and many other well known liberal theologians of of the time. Um, so Bart is a liberal theologian as he finishes his theological studies. He, he goes to Seifenville uh, in, in Switzerland to serve his first pastorate. And it's there in Seifenville that he gets the label of the red pastor. He is very much committed to socialist kinds of uh, principles and philosophies. And so he becomes somewhat of an activist pastor who is, who is advocating for the factory workers in his town, small hmm. village town. And he becomes known as sort of a very fiery, um, you know, I guess, uh, labor union kind of advocate, the, the advocate of the little guy or what have you over against the powers that be and whatnot so um that's his that's his original reputation and so he he owns liberalism he's a committed liberal he uh, studies of course schleiermacher in the course of his theological studies and and he's convinced at, that is until the outbreak of world war one and at the outbreak of world war one a number of his professors signed on to the the um, the the war uh, effort, the, uh, the the war strategy of of the Kaiser hmm. and Wilhelm Kaiser, and so he is he's quite disturbed by his professors signing on to to that war effort, uh, standing behind the Kaiser, and. And part of the reason why is because from Bart's perspective, I mean, Bart was was really a pacifist his whole life long, even after he left his 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 liberal stage, although he did serve in the, the, the Swiss military for a time. But, uh, you know, he he was quite disturbed because the the German war efforts, particularly in Belgium, uh, became became morally reprehensive to him the way in which the war was carried out and 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 the the piling up of the deaths and the bloodshed and whatnot that that Karl Barth had to go back to the theological drawing board and say what are the principles at play that led my professors to to support this kind of moral monstrosity mm. and and so he he found his, his this is it in a nutshell. There, it gets a lot more complex than this, but this is it in a nutshell is identifying God with the nation. OK, hmm. 
And so uh, the, the, the this idea of of liberal, which is common in liberalism, this idea of pulling God down and and identifying him with some sort of human characteristic um, human um, uh, efforts, uh, human institutions and whatnot. Okay. So uh, it, it's that kind of identification of God with man that Bart identified as being a problem within liberal theology. So what does he do? Uh, he publishes the Rover brief, his commentary on the book of Romans. And in the book, in, in that commentary, he opens up with a very Kierkegaardian statement, which is the, what, what he calls the, the qualitative difference between eternity and time. Hmm. And that's another way of saying the qualitative difference between God and man. And we would say as Vantillians, uh, the, the qualitative difference between the creator and creature, right? Or the creator creature distinction. Um, so he was what he was wanting to do was to was to uh, bring as radical of a gap or distinction or division that he could between God and man, between eternity and time, between the creator and creature. And that he accomplishes by way of uh, Kierkegaard, a lot of existential philosophy at the time. Uh, and and does so in the publication of of his commentary on Romans, which you've all heard this before, is said to have landed like a bombshell in the playground of the theologians. <laughs> so um, he was, you know, caused a, a a great deal of of offense there, um, but also gathered a great deal of supporters as well in, in the course of that. Uh, early supporters were people like Boltmann and Emil Bruner, et cetera. Uh, so you have the three big Bs uh, there uh, starting out the so-called neo-Orthodox movement. Um, there's a good reason why we ought not to call Bart's theology neo-Orthodox. We could talk about that at another point. But um, anyway, uh, those are sort of the three initial ones that kind of, you know, all come on board with him. And of course, he's had, he has a close circle of other friends that he is confiding in, um, that he is uh, uh, bouncing theological balls off of and, you know, doing, doing the theology game and having conversations and whatnot. So, so he has a circle early on, a, a circle of, of people who, who are following him, I would say, uh, including including Bruner and Boltmann, who, by the way, of course, later all break away from Bart and Bruner and Bart and Boltmann all become their own kind of circles. Right. And they become leaders of their own particular different new circles. <laughs> uh, and Bart goes on kind of in his own doing his own thing. But um, anyway, that's that's sort of the beginning of the beginning. Now, he goes on. He. Interestingly, he goes on, his first assignment is to teach Reformed theology at a university in Germany. And, um, and it's interesting, when he, when he goes there, he's the first and only faculty member, uh, Reformed hmm. faculty member in a, in a Lutheran university. Um, and and they, they give it to him to, uh, uh, to teach Reformed theology, and he's scrambling before he's supposed to teach a class on the Heidelberg Catechism, because he had never read the Heidelberg Catechism before. <laughs> no, let's study it. Um, and he's already a 
a ordained reformed minister, but that just goes to show how non-confessional the churches had become at that time. So, uh, so he's scrambling to study and, and, and whatnot. And he begins to, to uh, read the sources. And then after that, he begins to read, you know, Calvin and some of the other uh, uh, reformed theologians. And eventually fast forward, um, he'll, he'll eventually get back to Basel. Uh, there's all sorts of drama in the, in the places where he teaches prior to that, including, uh, a stand against Hitler. Uh, there was a, there was a point where he was supposed to begin class with the, with a pledge of allegiance and, uh, to the, to the Reich. And he refused to do that. And eventually he found himself being exiled from Germany uh, and and yeah, the, uh, the 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 Nazi regime did have a tail on him. I mean, you know, he was he was a bit of a, a target as a potential uh, rebel rouser. And anyway, returns to Basel, gets back to Switzerland, and uh, that's where he uh, finishes his church dogmatics. And of course, that is the the big thing that he writes in the the course of his life is is the church dogmatics. Um, just you know. Uh, an absolute mammoth uh, work of theology. And, uh, you know, I mean, he repeats himself a lot and, you know, without sort of denigrating the guy, I mean, it's a kind of, it's the kind of book that could have been written in, you know, half the volumes that it actually used. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, that, that's what we have. Um, so uh, quite, um, uh, quite lengthy. And, uh, you know, just a quick comment about his personal life. I mean, you know, this, this is well known now. Um, he was, uh, he was married to Nellie Hoffman and, um, uh, they had, they had several children together. I think they had four children, if I recall correctly. And, um, and of course there's the matter of Charlotte von Kirschbaum, uh, who was his, uh, his mistress and he met her i don't remember where he met her but they began a correspondence a a letter correspondence and uh, fell in love with each other he eventually uh, after much travail uh, brought her to be his assistant uh his you know his research assistant uh and 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 she i mean you know no joke i mean you know she <laughs> she she was his lover but you know he she really did assist him in his, his right. theological work she was a she was a theologian in her own right and an intellect and very useful to him in his uh in his work in theology and writing so uh she moved into the house and uh you know they had sort of this menage a trois kind of uh arrangement within the home and uh nelly didn't like it uh lo and behold um and uh that of course caused great tension and travail it's interesting to note that they're all buried together by the mm. way in the same cer uh, cemetery plot uh carl nelly and charlotte is uh his lolo as he used to call her wow um so anyway uh that's that's it in a nutshell there's so much more there uh that that you can that you can know and should know about the life of Bart, but that's it in a nutshell. Hopefully I didn't botch it too badly. No, it's extremely helpful, Dr. Cassidy. And I trust that many of our listeners um, are drinking water from a fire hydrant at this point. Uh, Barth, as I mentioned, and in the introduction, um, 
He he's a very controversial figure. I, I called him an enigma. Uh, you you alluded to the fact that when you first encountered reformed or evangelical minded uh, Christians engaging with Bart, uh, some thought he was a titan of uh, of reformed theology, or at least that he was some special theologian. Uh, others like Van Til uh, would say that Bart was a proponent of theological novelty. That Bartianism is is an entirely different religious conception, if I could use uh, the terminology of uh, Dr. Tipton, um, who's been on our show, of course, in the past and has been very outspoken about uh, his critiques of Bart from a Vantillian perspective. Um, but Dr. Cassidy, since you're on the show today, the, the ball is in your court. Would you be willing to provide us with just some of the key foundational theological components of Bart's thought? So if, in other words, if you want to understand Bart what do you need to understand? What do you need to grasp from his thought if you want to have a, a working knowledge of his theology? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the theology of Karl Barth really sort of um, doesn't, can't answer that question in a really neat, tight way. I guess I guess in in current historical theology literature, they talk about the the central dogma idea, and that comes in the context of the Calvin versus the Calvinists discussion about whether or not Reformed theology has a central dogma, such a central doctrine that kind of holds everything together, out of which spins the rest of the other doctrines. And uh, I, I I would invoke that concept here and say that Bart's theology really doesn't lend itself to us to the idea of a central dogma um, out of which all of the all of his theology spins out hmm. um, it but there are I would say there are central or uh, closer to the central themes hmm. Um, that that arise within his theology that are that, that that's really helpful to know, and and here I might make reference to um, George Hunsaker's book on how to read Karl Barth, and I might also make reference to Bruce McCormick's book on Karl Barth's realistic dialectical realistic theology. And uh, those, those also uh, McCormick's now very infamous uh, article on grace and being uh, from, I believe it is the Cambridge handbook on, it's either, I'm pretty sure it's Cambridge handbook on uh, Karl Barth in 2000. So uh, those, those resources will, will take you a long way towards getting you into some of those central concepts. So let me, let, let me just highlight one of them for you. Uh, we could go all day on this. I, I, I would direct your listeners to, um, uh, to the Reformed Academy where uh, Lane and I were able to co-teach a course on, on Van Til and Karl Barth's theology. And there we say so much more than what we can say here. So I'm just going to give you a very small snippet that I think is, is perhaps the closest to what we might identify as a central theme in Bart's thinking. Sounds great. And 
and then let you, you know, you and your listeners go off and, and listen to that Reformed Academy class because that will give you the details. Um, so, it, you know, doing that, I think that, you know, when, when you think about what Bart's doing, okay, uh, and what he's reacting against, you see that so much of Bart's theology has to be understood negatively. In other words, it's a reaction. A lot of his theology is reactionary. I mean, all of our theology in some ways is reaction, right? Uh, Nicaea was reactionary, right? Mm-hmm. So being, being reactionary um, or uh, being polemical is not necessarily a bad thing, okay? It's all about, you know, what you put in place of the thing against which you're polemicizing. So when you think about um, what Bart there is reacting against, right? He's reacting against basically three things or three theological movements. On the one hand, you have Roman Catholicism. Very early on, uh, particularly in the church dogmatics, uh, Bart is well known for, for saying that the analogia entis, which is he identified as, as the core concept in Roman Catholic theology is, um, is of the Antichrist. Okay, mm-hmm. is the invention of the Antichrist. Um, so he's he's got he's got Rome in in one one corner. He has liberalism in another, and yet in another he has Protestant scholasticism. What do those three have in common? The the according to Bart, that those three things have in common a commitment to to metaphysics. And here, when I say metaphysics, I'm speaking uh, in a in a very general way. I'm speaking about metaphysics. Um, uh, you know, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. <laughs> Hang on, no it's worries. probably got a letter out. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about metaphysics, we're talking about uh, you know particularly the type of metaphysics that you would find inspired by Aristotle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, an approach to ontology um, that is uh, committed to the idea of essences and substances, right? The idea that that things have a substance that are in nature. Uh, so, somebody has and possesses an essence hmm. that makes them what they are as opposed to something else, okay? And so... What those three things have in common is a commitment to the same metaphysical system, right? Which, by the way, Bart sees as 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 part and parcel of this idea of dragging God down and identifying him with something that is found within our time, within our within the created world, identified with man, his institutions, his ideas, his concepts. Um, to to give God a substance for Bart is to make God too much like us. It, it's a, mm. it's a commitment to the analogia entis, this idea that there is a, that, that man and God share um, a common third thing, namely being, and they mm. participate in being and a tertium quid called being. And so he's going to say that, 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 that liberalism for all of its difference, all of its reaction against Protestant scholasticism is actually really of a cloth with Protestant scholasticism. That's what Bart would say, because they both share a common commitment to that old metaphysic. And what Bart wants to do is do away with this idea that we have a nature, that we have um, sort of an embedded substance or God has a, a nature 
and a substance which is his that binds him to be who he is and out of which he cannot move. And so in place of that, that, uh, that approach to metaphysics, he's going to what, what uh, McCormick calls, he's going to replace it with what McCormick calls an actualistic ontology, hmm. which is a, an approach to ontology that is, that, that, you know, gets rid of this whole idea of sort of like a, a permanent nature and instead is going to talk about act. So you are not who you are, but you are what you do. Okay. Hmm. So the, so God's being is constituted by his acts, right? So he is what he does as opposed to God being who he is by nature, right? Um, instead, his nature is defined by, it's constituted by the things that he does. So God's acts end up identifying his being for what it is, namely his being in act, you know, being dash in dash act, being in act. Right. Um, so he is what he does. And that that sort of commitment to actualistic ontology is going to play out um, throughout his entire theological system. Okay. Everything is going to get an overhaul in light of that. And, and, you know, people, theologians who try to make Bart orthodox, in in other words, and I use orthodox, I'm using the word orthodox here, not as not in opposition to heterodox, but right. Right. When, when I'm using orthodox in, in a historical sense, right? You know, like put him people who who try to put Bart into the the stream of of lowercase C Catholic Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't seem to get this. The radical nature of his proposal. He is he is undercutting the entire system and he's giving it an overhaul from beginning to end. And the and Van Til is really good at pointing this out. What makes that so problematic is that Bart is going to use a lot of the traditional Orthodox language. Okay. But he's going to completely undercut the meaning of that Orthodox language as it's been historically known. And he's going to replace it with an actualistic ontology or, or an actualized version of its former self. And and that's what he does. And so when you read Bart, it can be very confusing because on the one hand, he he's throwing terms and language around that seems to be uh, 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 sound and orthodox and traditional and, you know, goes way back and whatnot. But it's it, it's not if you keep on reading and in keeping on reading, you find out what he's actually saying and, and, and you perceive the overhaul that he does to the entire system and you can find out that it's not what what you know it to be it, it's something completely different wow. um so you just need to continue to read and to dig into what bart like if you read like the first three paragraphs of like a chapter you go oh yeah, yeah he's just saying what calvin's saying what her right. saying or you know whatever but you keep on reading and you find out oh my goodness he's actually He's, he's flipping it on its head. 
It's right. it's something completely different than what it was before. Structurally, there might be some similarities, but substantially, it's completely changed. So, so in a nutshell, if we wanted to put this in a tweet or on a bumper sticker for Bart, God is what he does. Orthodox, Reformed, or lowercase c, Catholic Christianity would say God is who he is. Is that a, yeah. is that a fair... Uh, Again, very simple but succinct way of kind of differentiating between uh, Barth's conception uh, of God versus a Reformed or a lowercase c theology proper. Yeah, another way to put it, that's fine. Yeah, that's good. Um, Another way to put it is that um, for orthodoxy, God's acts are grounded in his nature. Mm -hmm. For Barth, God's nature is constituted by his acts. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just you know, flipping it on its head. That's, I mean, that's, it's not too complex when you think about it that way. It's just taking no, that's... Um, orthodox ontology and flipping it around 180 degrees. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. In light of such a radical move on Bart's part, um, you had mentioned some who, who accepted, or at least initially was following him in his, his trajectory theologically, um, how did his contemporaries, generally speaking, respond to him? Who were some of the major figures who who associated with him? Um, who were some of those who strongly criticized or rejected his views? Yeah, so um, Bart had more critics than he had friends. Um so a guy by the name of Turnison um, was a good friend of his, uh, ran in his circles, as far as I know, his whole life long. Um, uh, Bruner and Boltmann eventually left him, as as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and, ev- and everybody else was just a critic. I mean, you know, they, I think part of Bart really loved being the, the attention of, of just criticism and attack because uh, it brought the spotlight on him. But um, he, uh, uh, he, he really did. He had a, a lot of critics, pretty much you could put everybody except for a small circle of friends really uh, in that camp. And then students, of course, you know, he, he did gain a number of students and loyal students at that over the years. Uh, TF Torrance being one of the, one of the more well-known students um, Pannenberg and other, uh, so forth and so on. Uh, his critics, uh, would, uh, would include, you know, what, what he called fundamentalists. Um, and in particular, he had in view like American theologians, hmm. particularly Van Til, uh, but not just Van Til. Gordon Clark also was a critic, uh, early critic of Bart that would have been, uh, brought it to view very early on. Um, you know, Bromley ended up becoming a sympathizer. Uh, he was an American theologian. Um, uh, Burkhauer started out as a critic, uh, became a little bit more sympathetic to Bart later in his life. Uh, but particularly Van Til would have been categorized as by Bart as a, a, um, a cannibal. He called him that. He, huh. he called he called Van Til a cannibal. Wow, um, a man eater, and um, the, uh, the 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 idea and a fundamentalist. He also called him a fundamentalist. 
And really a lot of this kind of broke out over the question of the historicity of the resurrection. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ historical? And Bart, you know, the, the American theologians tried to pin Bart down on this because he was so ambiguous. And part of the reason why he was so ambiguous about it is because Bart has two conceptions of time. Okay. Now we, you know, normal, um, everyday, historical, orthodox, traditional theologians, when we think about time, we think about sort of like time's arrow, right? God created in the beginning and that arrow goes forward and whatnot. And it is part and parcel of the the time-space continuum. It's uh, it's part of creation. It's the, the unfolding of creation, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not it's not God, whatever. Um, it's, it, it has, you know, this, this movement through time. It, there's a yesterday, there's a today, and then there's a tomorrow. And we think of sequences, chronologies, et cetera. For Bart, um, that's one notion of time. The other notion of time is this transcendent event. And it doesn't have really a, what we would call a before, during, and after. Uh, it's not sequential or chronological, but it is an event. It's the event of Jesus Christ. The Christ event might mm. be a way to put it. And it's the event of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, so, you know, when you're when you're talking about um, when you're talking about the resurrection, you you have to and whether or not it's historical, you really do need to pin Bart down on which history because he would say yes it is and then he would also say no it's not wow and this is kind of part and parcel of his dialectical theology right uh his dialectical theology allows him to say yes and no at the same time sicket non um ya un nine um you know be able to say two things at once and um and so the 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 resurrection is not historical if by historical you mean it is contained within the time-space continuum in which we live and exist and have our being. But if you mean that it's historical in the event of God's time for us in Jesus Christ, then yes. But that's a transcendent event. It's not an event that takes place within the flow of calendar history. So, So Van Til and some others were trying to pin Bart down on this very thing. And Bart, of course, being a good dialectical theologian, refused to be pinned down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the nice thing about dialectical theology. You could say all sorts of cool things without having to commit to, you know, one thing or the other. You could say both at the same time um, and cover your your rear, as it were, <laughs> on both sides. Um, so that, you know, you can't get, you know, um, uh, attacked uh, from an angle by an enemy somewhere else because you'd always say no actually I, I meant this and and you point to the one side of your dialectic and if somebody else comes at you you can say no I meant that and you can point to the other side of your dialectic hmm. um, so I and and he had a reason for this I mean he did not want to it, this is sort of the pious reason uh, I, I put it in air quotes for you right, uh, right. Pi, pious reason that he did this is because he wanted to keep the resurrection, something so sacred as the resurrection, 
out of the hands of the historians. Um, in other words, he didn't. He thought that the resurrection was of of, of such significance and monument that to put it in our calendar time is to put it in a place where historians are able to analyze it. Um, they're able to either confirm it or deny it uh, according to their own particular historiographies and, and philosophy of history and, and whatnot of evidences and et cetera, et cetera. So if you put the resurrection in a transcendent time event instead, then you take it out of the hands of the historians so that the resurrection becomes something that is not verifiable. Hmm. And for, for Bart, he would want to say, this is, you know, sort of to speak, you know, in a sympathetic way for him. I mean, you know, or in a way that, you know, tries to show that he was trying to be pious, failed, but trying, um, you know, he was, he would want to say that the resurrection was too good. It was too great. It was too much of a, to put it in our terms today, a God thing Mm -hmm. to, to allow it to be subjected to the examination and analysis of man. Um, If, if it's the kind of thing that man can prove, then it's not the kind of thing that God would do is probably a way that Bart would be to put it that way, but that's kind of a way that he would put it. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm trying to I'm trying to give it the best, most positive spin I can, um, you know, in Karl Barth's, um, you know, to try to give him the best, I don't know, read or hearing. Um, and of course, though, that that's problematic. Right. Um, because when Paul talks about the resurrection and basically says, if Christ is not raised from the dead. Right. We have no hope. Right. Um, you know, Paul's not talking about a transcendent time event. Right. He's talking about something that took place in our real calendar time history. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, whether or not man can prove that is another question altogether. But it's a tangential question to the fact of, you know, the resurrection is the kind of thing that happened in our real calendar time uh, without at all ceasing to be a God thing. Without at all ceasing to be a God's event, God's act. It was God's act. It was a divine act, but it took place in our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's something that just Karl Barth won't, won't allow for. Well, as we continue the theme of Barth's dialectical theology, um, you know, I've, I've heard on an episode of Reform Forum, it's been a while back now, it was a Christ the Center episode where uh, it's recent biography written about Bart and talking about, I think it was a life in crisis or something along those lines is the title. And one of the key aspects of that book was, was talking about how Bart's theological commitments, uh, it, it ultimately led to him in a way justifying his um, relationship that he had with his research assistant. And as you, you pointed out uh, moments ago, Dr. Cassie, that's one of the, um, more recent discoveries in terms of objectively being able to discern, hey, there, there was uh, infidelity that took place for many, many years. So I was wondering if you'd be able to talk about how Bart's theological commitments, if, if they really did, uh, lead to him justifying having an extramarital affair for years on end, and maybe some warnings that contemporary ministers can glean from the reality that 
the, theological ideas have consequences. And in Bart's case, it led to a significant period of his life in which he was unfaithful to the woman that he entered the covenant of marriage with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> wow. Um, so that's Christiana Teeth's book, um, Carl Bart, A Life in Crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's a phenomenal biography. Read also Everhard Bush's uh, Life and Letters of Carl Bart. That's also very good. You'll you'll get a lot from both of those. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. You know, I uh, I, I am. Not, I've thought about this a lot uh, over over some time, particularly since the Christiana Teets interview that we did at Reform Forum. Um, I you know I I've become maybe a little bit more reluctant to tie some particular aspect of Bart's theology uh, specifically to the adulterous relationship that he endured for many years. Um, You know, I guess, you know, because I've been around the block long enough now to see guys who, whose theology is perfectly orthodox and sound fall into that and worse sins. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, so, you know, orthodoxy itself does not protect you from, you know, self-delusion and sin, right? Um, it just, it doesn't work that way. Right. Now, that being said, um, reading Teet's biography on Bart, it is quite remarkable the way in which Bart does justify the affair and the arrangement and the divorce that he contemplated from Nelly. He, event- he, he never divorced her, but he did contemplate it. And they came close on several occasions. They went back and forth about it. Eventually, he stayed with her, but... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but when you read... When you read in his own in his own words uh, from from letters that he wrote to uh, uh, both Charlotte and and Nellie, uh, and you read the way in which he tried to justify the relationship and tried to justify um, the, uh, the 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 potential divorce, it's it's um, it's hair raising. Uh, to see to to see the way in which he takes God's word and turns it into the opposite of itself, hmm. and and to make now you know again no self no no, no judging self righteously here because sure. I know that I'm subject to do the same thing, which is why sure. I belong to a presbytery so that when or if I do, my brothers will hold me accountable. Amen. Um. So um. But uh. You know, that's what he does. He he takes the scriptures and he makes it say the opposite of what it does. And he, he can make thou shall not commit adultery and turn that into thou shall get a divorce. I mean, he does that like like he he says, I mean, this is, you know, he says that sometimes the seventh commandment requires us to divorce. Wow. Um, now he's not talking about 
you know, like the situation where if adultery is committed, you may divorce. Like he's right. not talking about that. He's talking about that the seventh commandment, there are circumstances in which the seventh commandment itself justifies divorce. Hmm. Um, so as to avoid adultery, you have to get a divorce. I mean, th- this is the kind of stuff that, that, that he says. So, um, so it's really, it's really bad theology uh, that he's capable of doing. And I guess we all are at times. Sure. Um, I will say this lastly, because uh, I do wonder, I mean, you know, there's the, I always I have always seen Bart's theology as being sort of a, a radical superlapsarianism that that lends itself towards antinomianism, sort of like God's done it all already. Doesn't really matter what we do here. OK, and, and, and I'm telling you, that's actually true. Um, so the question of Bart's universalism has to come up here. OK. Now, it's a controverted issue. Some people, he's a universalist, he's not. Well, he is a universalist, but he had one time in the church dog, twice actually in a church dogmatic says, well, you know, we can't say that at the end, everybody will be saved because that's to tell God what to do. So we can't really say that. But everything that he says about salvation, about redemption, his doctrine, his soteriology is universalistic. Wow. Um, all men are saved in the man, Jesus Christ. That's clear. Um, I would challenge any scholar to prove otherwise. Hmm. Uh, it, it's clear and on the surface. Every man in Jesus Christ, okay, is is saved. It, Jesus Christ is all men, okay? So if you, so what is faith? Okay, so why faith? What? Why do you need faith? Okay, faith is not the thing that unites you to Christ whereby you become saved, okay? There is for Bart, very clearly, no transition from wrath to grace in us, okay? Um, The transition takes place only exclusively and always and for all men in Jesus Christ, and it's already been done. So what is faith? Faith is me acknowledging what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Wow. There's more, there's more to it than that. It gets a little bit more complex than that, but that's it in a nutshell. So, so faith doesn't affect a change in relationship to God, whereby we transition from being under his wrath to being now in his grace. Um, faith is simply an acknowledgement. Okay. So that um, it, so that you don't need to have faith. I mean, let this set in for a thing. You don't actually need to have faith to be saved because to, to have, to, to make faith, to make salvation contingent upon our faith is to take salvation now back out of the hands of God and put it into our own. Thanks, Bart. Um, because God has already accomplished our salvation once for all in the Christ event in Jesus Christ of all men. So, you don't even need to have faith. It's good to have faith. That's why we do missionary activity because, you know, it's good to bring the word of God to people and for people to, you know, worship God and and to have faith in him. That's, that's a good thing. It's good for man. It's God's desire for man to, to acknowledge his salvation, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessary for salvation. You see Um, now, if that's the case with faith, how much more so with works, and so 
if that's the case, if our salvation is not in any way contingent upon us, whether in our faith or our works, right, then at what point does somebody have any motivation at all, right, unto good works? And, and of course, you know, I mean, Bart's a, you know, kind of person, he's a Christian in that mm-hmm. broad, you know, non-Christian sense. Um, and, you know, he would want to say, well, you know, you, you don't want to just go, you know, sinning, right? You know, um, you know, because, you know, even Bart believes that there are certain things that are wrong because he believes that the Kaiser's war effort was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like he's, he doesn't believe that there's right and wrong or anything like that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, when you realize that, yeah, you know, if I do good works, if I don't, don't really matter, you know, um, if I have faith, but I don't, you know, and, and I, I can't help but to think that maybe that antinomianism that mm. I perceive as, as a form, a certain form of antinomianism um, is resonant within your thinking that, you know, you, you can't help but to perhaps more easily justify sin. Uh, now, now, now that may, there may be a connection there between, you know, his theology, because he never really at any point says, well, you know, I believe this about good works, therefore I'm going to, you know, have an affair. I mean, you know, he doesn't say that, so it's all speculative, but, um, you know, if I, I want to cautiously ask a question without it being, you know, self-righteously judgmental or anything like that, but just ask the question if maybe there isn't a connection between his understanding of, of universal salvation and then, um, you know, his kind of moral failures. Sure. It's very helpful. So throughout our discussion, you've mentioned a number of resources you, you think would be helpful for us to understand. Um, his life and and some to understand his thought. Are there any other resources that you would recommend? And would you be willing to share a little bit about your work or the work you've done on BART in conjunction with the Reformed Forum? Yeah, I think there's only, in in terms of taking your latter question first, I think that there's probably only one resource that I haven't mentioned yet, which is uh, the book that I have on BART's theology God's Time for Us is the title, published by Lexham Press. You can, if if, if your listeners are uh, uh, subscribers of Lagos, you can you can get that book in your Lagos package. Um, but you could also get a hard copy as well through Lagos or uh, on Amazon or whatever. Reform Forum, I think, sells copies. Yeah, they do. They have copies as well. So you probably get a discount through Reform Forum. Um, so yeah, in terms of my own work, you can, you can look at that. I have a number of other, uh, published pieces, uh, articles about BART. I have, uh, a piece in the Westminster Theological Journal on eternity or on, uh, on Trinity and being, I think is what it is, or yeah, Trinity and grace, grace and Trinity. I forget the name of it now. It's been so many years. I think I published that back in 2000. 10 or something like that so um and then there's um 
let's see what else is there. There was another article that I wrote or published on Turretin and uh, not, uh, um, yeah, Turretin and the Covenant of Works. Uh, that's in the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. Uh, and then, the you know, blog posts that are here and there and everywhere. I mentioned already the Reformed Academy. Uh, we mm -hmm. did that class. Uh, me and Lane did that class on Bart and uh, Van Til. That would be useful. So, yeah, those are those are some of the things that people can find. If you just type in Bart uh, on Reform Forum in the search engine, you'll come, you know, there'll be a ton of stuff that comes up. Um, and I, yeah, I also would want to commend Lane's book on, on, uh, Van Til's Trinitarian theology, because he does deal with, with Bart in that sum as well. And, uh, that would be, I think, worth your listeners read too. So, well, we've been talking with Dr. Jim Cassidy about the life and theology of Carl Bart and Dr. Cassidy, it's been a joy to have you on today. Just as we seek to draw the conversation to a close, um, what final comments would you like to make about Carl Barth? And if you feel comfortable doing so, uh, we would love to hear your personal assessment of how confessionally reformed Christians should think about Barth's theology uh, in the 21st century. So feel free to share as little or as much as you'd like uh, as we as we seek to wrap up our conversation today. Yeah, um, I guess the best place to finish up is just to remind your listeners of, of what, you know, Van Til was saying when he wrote Christianity and Bardianism, you know, cause there he's rifting off of Machen's book, Christianity and liberalism. And the, the, the argument in Machen's Christianity and liberalism is that Christianity and liberalism are not two versions of the same religion, but two different religions. Right. And Van Til is is saying the same about Bardianism, and uh, Bardianism is a modern phenomenon. It's it is a it is a theology that is born out of modernity. And while on the surface we oftentimes might imagine that Bart's theology, being a reaction to liberalism, is of a wholly different cloth from liberalism um, but it's actually not uh, the the rejection of, of metaphysical ontology that you find in Bart was also there resident in in um, forms of liberalism as well and so uh, the rejection of the core doctrines of the faith I mean you know Bart Bart doesn't come along and say, you know, pox on this house and then moves on. I mean, he says, he says, you know, this is Calvin's view. This is the reform view. This is the, um, the confessional view. And uh, this is the problem with it. Here you go. Here's something better. And puts in its place something that has been actualized. And so, you know, he's, He's giving us something that sounds orthodox. I mean, at least with the liberals, okay? The liberals were like, yeah, you know, this is this is really no good. We just need to reject this. <laughs> and then they kind of move on, you know, and and, leave, and and they kind of find some things that they can, you know, I guess, salvage. 
and and yeah there's you know when you think about kant's um uh, religion within the bounds of reason alone and he does a little bit of like what bart does where he kind of takes these old traditional doctrines and he says yeah you know those are kind of old fuddy-duddy ideas here's a more modern way of thinking about it and then reconceives those doctrines Van Til, yeah, he's kind of doing something like that. Uh, Van Til. Bart's kind of doing something like that as well. So, um, you know, Bart's got, you know, the, the, he's, he, he just is confusing. So, you know, when you read Bart, just understand that, you know, he's using language that is, that is orthodox. And, and oftentimes the little comments he makes whereby he takes swipes at the traditional understanding of those concepts or those words um, gets missed. And then quickly he's putting something else, something different in its place. Just be aware of that. And, and for goodness sakes, um, let's stop calling Bart reformed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he was, he was reformed in his church affiliation only. Uh there, there is, there is nothing left of reform theology in Bart's system when it's all said and done. Nothing except mm-hmm. for words, maybe structures, concepts, all that. But it's been gutted completely of the substance of the tradition. I can't think. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know. There's maybe one, two out there I missed, but I, I can't, I can't think of any doctrine that has gone untouched whereby Bart has said, "Oh yes." 100% endorsement on this one without any alteration or change at all. No, it's completely overhauled, which is why, which is why we have something that's called Bardianism. Okay. Um, you know, we have, we have something that's called Protestantism for a reason because Protestant theology so revolutionized the way that we think about theology and the church and worship that it, it took on a life of its own. Um, now, I happen to believe that the life that Protestantism has taken on in its most faithful expressions is actually a recovery of, of true Catholicism. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's not like a life of its own, like it's de novo. It's actually, you know, a return to the sources ad fontis. And it's a, it's a reclaiming and recapturing of, of the best of the Catholic tradition and reforming it in such a way that brings it into greater conformity with scripture. But at the time it was, and if, if you don't, I mean, you know, there, I mean, Protestantism really is an earth shaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we've got some, you know, his, historical theologians that kind of want to tone that down today. And they want to say things like, Oh no, you know, the Luther was actually a conservative theologian, uh, you know, ask the Catholics that question, you know, um, you know, a- a- ask a Catholic living in the 16th century, do you regard Luther as a conservative theologian? You know, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, he was a, he was a radical rebel rouser, right? Um, he's excommunicated for goodness sakes. Um, he's, you know, he's not conservative. Um, he, you know, Protestantism um, uh, was so different than, than what it came out of. Uh, it really was. Uh, not saying that there wasn't continuity, but it's just so different from what came before it that it took on an ism of its own. Sure. And there's a reason why we have Bardian ism uh, and why we had liberalism 
is because those two isms were so distinct, so different from what came before. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, if you think about the immediate pr predecessor of, of BART, you, you would think it's liberalism. But remember, liberalism for BART, liberalism, Protestant scholasticism, and medieval Roman Catholicism are of a cloth, okay? <laughs> So when he makes a break with, with liberalism, there's a reason why he criticizes Protestant scholasticism and the Antis of, of Roman Catholicism, um, because he sees them all as of a cloth. And he really is bringing about something new. It's not neo-orthodoxy, right? Uh, what, I think it was Gershner who said, yeah, it's neo-orthodoxy if you take the E out. <sighs> <laughs> no orthodoxy right. um, and uh, you know and but I mean it's it's not neo-orthodoxy but it is something neo it is something new um, and radically so that it's taken on a movement and a life of its own so um, when you know don't underestimate the theology of Karl Barth and I say that even though at the same time he shares core principles with what came before him hmm. you know the the modernism that that is there already and and bart bart's view is a evolution of of liberalism it's not the overturning of liberalism it's it's an evolution of it and yet it's so different from uh liberalism that it really does stand as a as a marker in the history of theology that mm -hmm. until the day that Jesus returns will always be there as a separate chapter in your church history books or in your historical theology books. You're going to have a chapter on on Protestantism. You'll have a chapter on uh, schol Protestant scholasticism. Um, you'll have a chapter on liberalism and you'll have a chapter on Bardianism. I mean, mm. it's that, it's that distinct. Well, we have been talking to Dr. Jim Cassidy about Karl Barth. So thank you for coming on to the Covenant podcast, Dr. Cassidy. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This was fun, guys. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace.